So we're in part two of this chapter, finishing hopefully up all of chapter nine, um, but it is really, really important um, be- to understand where we came from in uh, the beginning of chapter nine with Daniel's prayer. Um, so hopefully you are able to be here last week to hear that or have listened online uh, to that. But as a, a small recap, what was happening, as uh, John um, Redfern mentioned, is Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. He's reading the very words of God to Jeremiah in a, pro- in a prophecy. Namely, this prophecy uh, was about the fall of Babylon um, and the seven years of when it would come to end of the Israeli exile. And so Daniel is seeing this, seeing it rightly in his time, and what he wants to do is he, he wants to participate in God's work. He sees God at work here, and he wants to participate. And so he appropriately makes the application um, that we all should be making when considering prophecy, is that when he considers this prophecy, he responds in prayer. Prayer, again, being the very act that allows Daniel to participate in God's very work. And in Daniel's prayer that we considered last week, we said, we said three main things that we saw him consider. The one, he was proclaiming the truth about God. And then he continued to be, uh, to be proclaiming the truth about himself or about Israel. And then he rightly understands putting those two halves together, understanding the truth about God and the truth about who he is, then he sees the truth about grace, and that grace is extended to him. And this is the setting of the scene, is he is now understanding that grace and rightly is going before God and making a plea. And that's where we stopped in 19, as he's made this great great plea for God to do what only he can and restore Jerusalem. And so that's the setting of the text. We run into uh, now picking up in verse 20. Um, It says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. There's a really kind of an urgency here. Um, There's a a quick pace action that's going on in um, the petition, specifically of the beginning of verse 20 and uh, 21. It's, While I was still speaking and praying. This is happening while he is actually, in fact, praying. I don't know if that verse is recorded from 3 through 19, um, that this now jumps somewhere into the those, that that was the whole prayer he wrote down, but he only halfway through, and then he's here at this moment. Or maybe it is that simply 19 wasn't the end of his prayer. He was praying through 19, and he was going to continue to keep praying, but then right at the moment, uh, God jumps while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins, then he's now brought to this kind of turning of the road, a different direction, and the emergence of this character, Gabriel. But again, this is the reminder of, of how Daniel gives us a correct model when it comes to prayer. Um, when it comes to us making petitions or plea, pleas before God, then it is always an appropriate place to start with our confessions. That's what Daniel did. He confessed who God is, he confessed who he was, and then now he's made this great plea. Last week, I included a quote when we were talking about confessions um, from a scholar named Herman Veldkamp. In the end of it, he, he wrote, uh, where confession of sins die out, the church is no longer the church. Now, I found that particularly moving. That's why I wanted to include it. Uh, I did get several comments about it um, on Sunday and through the week, and I do want to make at least one clarifying comment because I appreciated this person who came up um, and was trying to say, no, 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 wait. You're, say, you're saying that then when confession stops, the church is no longer the church. Um, and I was like, that's really just an application form. I'm not saying that in identity form. It still holds the same identity. Um, you know, when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, um, you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and not even the gates of Hades prevail against us. 
This isn't some quote to say that, well, if, if Satan can somehow remove confession from the church, then the church will fail. Um, that, that's not the case. The church is the church. Its identity is granted by God. It's just in its application. It's not being the church. It's not doing what it's called to doing if it's not confessing. This week, instead of uh, Veldkamp, I'll let a, an older contemporary, John Calvin, weigh in with his thoughts. In his commentary on the uh, um, book, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9, specifically this verse, he's, he's talking about why Jesus tells us to pray um, in the Lord's Prayer. He's making a New Testament application and saying when, when the Lord instructs us to pray, forgive us our sins. Um, that he, he's, he's trying to say, well, this is, this is why Daniel's confessing, this is why we are confessing. He says this, this then is our righteousness, to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may graciously absolve us. For whom did Christ wish to use this petition? Surely all of his disciples. If anyone thinks that he has no need for this form of prayer and this confession of sin, let him depart from the school of Christ and enter into a herd of swine. Well, John, tell us how you really feel. Again, I think what he's trying to point out and what we're getting at is there's an absurdness to forgetting confession as the church because we're called to it. It's rightly how we are to participate with God in his work. And so this is what Daniel does. This is when Daniel is confessing both individually and he's confessing corporately. He's saying all of Israel and myself, uh, this is the great confession we have. This is actually what uh, John and uh, uh, Chris talked about on the podcast this week. I wasn't on it because I didn't um, have a voice, uh, but they, they talked through these concepts. And some of why we even integrated in con- a time of confession into today's service was um, this reminder, the reminder we need this. We are people who easily forget this, especially in the nation of where we live in comfort now. And so we need these periodic reminders. And so that's hopefully what this is, a reminder towards confession. But again, we see this urgency in Daniel's appeal. We see this, this, he's in the middle of this plea and this petition. Um, He's trying to proclaim these truths and and let God know who he is, who he knows he is, and he wants to claim God's grace that is given to him. And then in the, the, the very urgency of Daniel is then matched here by the immediacy of God. And I think this is truly fascinating. Um, Again, in 21, the repetition, while I was praying or speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrificed. This is, Daniel's not even done with his prayer, and yet God's already standing in with Gabriel to give him an answer, to respond to it. This is an immediate response um, from God. And, and again, here, I think, it is, I think it's truly fascinating to consider why God so immediately responds to Daniel's prayers. Because we know, and Scripture continues to reveal, it's like, like God answers in His own timing um, and in His own ways. Um, God, God sometimes tarries. His response now is to our request is to wait. Um, but here, He actually responds immediately. But one thing's true is that when we know that while God may wait in responding to our prayers, God does not wait in hearing us and hearing our prayers. Isaiah 65, 24 says it like this, "'Before they call, I will answer.'" While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The psalmist apparently understood this in 139 when he said, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so God hears us immediately. God hears Daniel immediately. But fascinating enough, God chooses to respond also immediately. We can't rightly say that Daniel's prayer caused God to respond. We also can't rightly say that 
Daniel's prayer wasn't the occasion on which God chose to respond immediately. There's a possibility here. What we can say is it is true and it is made apparent here in the Scripture that Daniel is seeking to participate in God's work through prayer, and God invites him and gives him the gift of participating. Daniel is faithful to pray, but God is faithful to respond in granting of this gift. So again, while we were speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight and at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, we've, this is the second time we've run into Gabriel here. We ran into him earlier. He then was described as having the appearance of a man um, in chapter 8. Now, he's being described as a man. Now, this isn't actually that he's a man. He's still Gabriel. He's still set apart. He's still this angelic being. Um, and actually, there's a Hebrew nuance in the wording that's here that's, um, that's really hearkening more on, yes, Gabriel's status, um, but also God's position. Because man, the term that's used here for man, there's several terms in Hebrew for man. The one um, that is specifically used here also denotes uh, status or position and is oftentimes translated even like servant. And so I think there's a poetic understanding to this that would be rightly put as a servant, a great one of a greater God is who's showing up. This is Gabriel. This is his role. And he shows up here and he gives this um, continued wisdom. I also think it's interesting to note when he comes, when he comes. I think this is a fascinating insight about Daniel um, because he comes at the time of the evening sacrifice. Uh, That would have been about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They would have had morning, uh, afternoon, and evening sacrifices, and the evening sacrifice would have been at about 3 o'clock. So Daniel is at about 3 o'clock, and he is praying during this evening sacrifice. But the problem is there's not an evening sacrifice. Babylon put an end to that when they destroyed the temple. This is God's people is removed from the ability to um, participate in the normal corporate discipline of worship by going to the temple during evening, sacrificing and praying to the Lord. But yet Daniel, still even though that this has been deprived from him, he doesn't deprive himself of that, and he holds the same apparently uh, same uh, ritual or at least steady discipline that even at these normal times when they should be sacrificing, Daniel knows he's going to go and he's going to at least pray before God. This again makes sense when we look back to the lion's den about how he was so predictable, about how he could have gotten caught. One of the articles I read um, put, it, put it like this. I thought it was funny. He said, uh, you can take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. Um, what he's doing here is he's, he's recognizing still where all of everything that he knows in his core identity, where does it actually come from? It doesn't come from the secular source of position, of power that he has before these kings. It doesn't come um, from his kind of own merit or his own understanding. Where it comes from from, is from God, and that's where Daniel's turning. He's turning his attention back to that source. And again, we reflected a little bit on this last week when we looked back at Daniel 1.17, where it talks about uh, God gifting him with all of uh, the ability that he would need to basically perform his role as the prophet. We said if anybody was greater gifted by God to be a prophet, to be given what it says to be given in Daniel um, one seventeen, all wisdom and all understanding, you would think Daniel would have enough, that he would be able to do this. Yet no, he's returning to that source. He knows where that source comes from. He returns to that source, and he wants to participate God in his great work. And then now, interestingly, God chooses to give him more. He's already been given understanding. And now because he doesn't just sit back and on, on his own kind of giftings and just play that out, but he's continuing to go back to the Lord, the Lord is gracious to Daniel and gives him even more. 
I think this is uh, uh, apt. When we participate in God's work, He will never be insufficient to supply the source of the power to accomplish His will. A friend of mine actually casually in in conversation talking about different things that I tried to um, remember what he said and write it down, and I wrote it remembering he was talking about, we will never exhaust the bank account for which God gives to accomplish His purposes. His checks don't bounce for those who are participating in His work. Daniel's seeking to participate in God, and God is faithful to continue to provide Daniel with the ability to participate in this work, and he's doing it through this prayer. Let's continue, verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is, I feel like, what is, again, this repetition of understanding that Daniel here is given work to do. He seeks out what work, uh, to be a part of the work of the Lord, and he is given a work. And Gabriel tells him, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. That's what what Daniel's supposed to be doing in this. He's now supposed to be considering. He's supposed to do the study over this, and then now he's supposed to understand it. But notice the accomplishment because this is, this is what it says in 23, but we already covered in 22 how the accomplishment of Daniel's work. How is he actually really going to understand it? He's tasked with this, consider, but as far as it comes to being successful in it, the success in it doesn't come in Daniel's merit. It comes in the Lord. He made me understand. Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. I think this is a fascinating kind of outplay, again, of Daniel's successfulness in the job that God has given him. It comes from, not Daniel himself, but from the Lord's provision. Considering is Daniel's part, understanding is the Lord's part. And I think this is applicable to us today, as we have also been given God's Word, um, how we are also given the command to consider it. And so we should rightly go about that task, considering God's Word, knowing that the understanding of that is something that he is going to understand and empower through his Holy Spirit. This is why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, think over what I say, consider, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is why when I prayed at the time of the closing of the word, I wanted to be careful to say, Lord, as we consider your words, you grant us the understanding by your spirit. Because Daniel, Daniel is demonstrating a continued faith, but God is going above and beyond Daniel to point out his faithfulness. Remember, Daniel doesn't think of himself as the main protagonist of this story. He thinks of God as it, and yet again, he makes sure to show it in this way. God shows up, and God gives this message to Daniel. Gabriel's message, I can summarize in three ways, and kind of like what we did last week. I'm gonna, I wrote these over and over in my notes to periodically remind us of this, because this is going to be an important understanding. Gabriel's message summarized is, that, is three things. First, God hears you. And God has sent me, and you are greatly loved. How great is that? The God who is all-glorifying, all-powerful, all-sufficient, He goes and says, I hear you, I have sent for you, and I want you to know that I love you. I think this is the key to understanding all of chapter 9. In fact, this is probably the key to understand all of Scripture, especially when we get into the new covenant age, when we see the revelation of Jesus Christ and the work and the ministry that he accomplished and the death and the resurrection he has on the cross. 
What we see is still a continued message when we approach God's Word that God hears us, that God sent His Son for us, and that God loves us. I think this is the overarching message, and this is what we don't want to miss. We don't want to continue in the next four verses, unpacking some of these concepts about this prophecy, and get so muddied in the waters that we forget that overall message, because that's the main message. Apparently, why we have this prophecy of these next four verses is to tell Daniel and is to tell us that God hears us, that God has sent for us, and that God loves us, that He will accomplish what He can do. And so here we, here we go, the vision. Now we descend in the abyss. James Montgomery, a, a scholar, uh, put, it, put it this way. He said, the history of exegesis of the 70 weeks is the dismal swamp of the Old Testament criticism. Doesn't that just get you excited to keep going and study? But I think that, that that's, what, that's what I really want to talk about. Is I, I don't want, this is that concept, I don't want us to be found in the swamp not being able to see the great light of this overall message. And in fact, you know, all commentators I looked at considered, again, that this is one of the most difficult texts of Scriptures. Um, in fact, it's probably the only thing that all the commentators agreed on. Everything else they didn't agree on. Uh, and there's tons and tons of differing views here. Um, and, and in a little bit of a personal note, um, I, I, I wasn't really sure at this point where I was going to take the sermon. Um, there was part of me that began this endeavor two weeks ago to try to at least, you know, put together all of these way, all of these different views into some kind of concise form and, and present to you a, a, a little bit of a timeline of historically how this all could have worked out. Um, but I'll, I, this was the very article I was reading when I abandoned that. From this is writer's notes. From the first of Nisan, 444 B.C., to the first of Nisan in A.D. 33, there are 476 years of 365 days, or 173,740 days. From the fourth of March to the 29th of March, there are 24 more days. If you add in 116 days for leap years and the total number of actual days between the decrees to rebuild Jerusalem and Christ's death is 173,880 days. Y'all with me? You tracking? We're good? Awesome. We got, we got 25 more minutes of this. After this comes an undefined gap of time and a break in the prophecy until the final last week, which is described in more detail in the book of Revelation. Gabriel spoke of 69-year weeks or 483 years. Using a stylized prophetic 360-day year, this multiplies out to 483 times 360, which is 173,880 days. Bingo, we landed on the mark, right? I jest and, and, and I kid a little bit, and, and I kid with... Out excluding his work, because um, Chris and I talked about it even between services, and he reminded me of what we even said a couple of weeks ago, I mean, back in, I think like Daniel 2 or 3 in the podcast, um, that there's a very real possibility that this is a literal interpretation, and it is literally to the day fulfilled, that either on Christ's death or on his triumphal entry, um, that you could go back in history and see when this decree was made to when the, Jesus came, that to the day the prophecy was fulfilled. That, that may actually be the case. But what I really want to do more is I want to remind ourselves of an of a intrinsic truth when it comes to applying Scripture in our own lives. And since we've been talking about confession, we might as well point to the great Westminster Confession um, where it says uh, these words. It says, All things in Scripture 
are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. I think what, it, what, what this is pointing to when I'm trying to get at this is, is there are some Scriptures that are just not plain. But this isn't God playing hide-and-seek with His Word. This isn't God playing hide-and-seek with Himself. This isn't God saying, you have to figure out all of these things. You have to solve the math equation, and then only by the time you solve that, you can rightly see who I am and what I am doing. Remember, that's the main thing. God is doing this abundantly clear. He's the one who's accomplishing this. And now He's giving us insight into a mystery that is less clear. And there's an important rule of when it comes to interpreting Scripture, when you come to these passages that are less clear, you don't use the less clear to give guidance to the clear. You don't use the unclear to interpret the clear. Instead, you use what is clear, and then you interpret the unclear. And I think that's what hopefully our aim is. But again, if, if, uh, if, you, didn't, if you didn't like that commentator's timeline, um, don't worry, I got others. I got others. There's one. Maybe that's how it's going to play out. If you don't like that one, here's another one. If you don't like that one, here's another one. If you don't like that one, here's another one. And if you don't like that one, here's another one. And that's just, I just stopped there. And honestly, that last one's not that bad. It's pretty good. But all that to say, there is a ton that is going on to this. And I think we can understand why there's such a um, vast differing opinion of how this plays out. Um, But what we can't miss is, again, who accomplishes this. And this is, again, God. God will hear us. God will rescue us. And it's because God loves us. But there's some big questions that we have to deal with in these four verses. What are these sevens, these weeks or weeks of years? Um, Is this symbolic or is this literally to be understood? Is the anointed one in verse 25 the same anointed one that shows up in 26? Is there a gap in the years between 25 and 26? These are hard questions. And sadly, our time is up, so Chris can handle it next week. <laughs> no, but what I am confident of is while I was even poring over this, I was, I was reminded of the fact that I bet Daniel also poured, under this, poured over this. I think Daniel took his command to consider and to understand, um, and I think he poured under, over all of these things. And whereas he probably couldn't produce because he didn't have the historical witness of all these neat, clean timeline, timelines, that we have the advantage because we've seen more and we get to now look backwards. I don't think he could have probably seen it that way, but what we don't miss is that apparently even in that, Daniel doesn't lack understanding. God accomplishes that to him. He understands. And so what Daniel understands, I think, is paramount for what we are to do and to understand and so that we don't get bogged down into the details to miss the main message. So one more time, God hears us, God will rescue us, and God loves us. So let's consider a little bit about this prophecy, hopefully without losing that in mind. Um, I wrote a disclaimer here. Um, uh, I wrote it as, I reserve the right to change my mind as early as later this evening and as often as I needed for the rest of my life till the matter is clear or even better till the Lord comes. But let's look at the prophecy and and get some of of these questions at least um, wrestled with. Verse 24, 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. This is the first thing that we run into is um, a lot of these scholars are debating what does it mean with these terms, 70 uh, weeks that are here. Nobody really argues about the word 70. That's pretty clear in Hebrew. But this word weeks that is used here um, is oftentimes just used as a period of time, um, meaning sometimes that it's an ambiguous period of time, but most of the time that it's, it's seven periods of something. That could be days. And that could be one literal week, 70 weeks. Um, this is how the Israelites uh, even referred to their own week. They looked back to God um, in creation where God took six days to create the world, and on the seventh day he rested, and that's when they celebrate Sabbath. And so when they refer to their week, they just call it a seven. But it could also be a period of seven weeks. But I think it is also appropriate, and I think I would agree with those that say this is probably 77 periods of years um, I, I, if you want to dive more into this, I'll at least give you a little bit of the background of where this comes from. This draws back from Numbers 25, which deals with the Lord's command to Sabbath the land, to rest the land on every seven year, years of production. Because apparently, in at least we get from the Chronicler in Second Chronicles, that Jeremiah's uh, prophecy about the 70 years of exile was intrinsically aligned, apparently, with Israel not obeying one only, not only God's commands, but specifically God's commands to Sabbath the land. And somewhere wrapped up in the 70 years before they're returned, um, there is the atonement, the payment for all of that Sabbath land rest that they didn't do. And so I do think that there's this concept of the seven periods, this heptomads of years that are found here um, that represent rightly in this term. And I think that's the way Daniel probably hears it. But even if the time and maybe the how isn't necessarily clear. What gets accomplished is abundantly clear here. What, what God says He's going to do, you, you can't miss. And I think that's the main focus. Six things I want to highlight again from verse 24. He says, transgression will be finished. Sins will be brought to an end. Atonement will be made for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. Vision and prophecy will be sealed. And the most holy will be anointed. This is actually probably the literal way we should be reading it, the most holy be anointed. I know when we read the ESV earlier, um, the ESV throws in another word, the most holy place. Some other translations want to say the holy one. We actually don't know. It is just, in the Hebrew, it's just simply that the anointment of the holy most. So it's really just the anointment of the most holy. But I, I think that there's no denying it. Even if you're, even in understanding of when you take the consideration of the anointment of the most holy, who is going to be accomplishing all of that? Who is going to be doing all of this? And I think with any cursory glance at the New Testament, um, we see that this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who will finish transgressions. He will end sins. He will atone for our iniquities. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus' visions and prophecies will be sealed. They will no longer be needed to portray for Jesus. Instead, it is Jesus who has accomplished it. Thus, there's no need for them. And then Jesus, the most holy, will be anointed. I, I, even, if, even, again, I think if you walk next door um, and ask the kids and read through that list and ask them, who does this work? I think that they would say Jesus. 
I even went so far as a, uh, yesterday when I was reading over my notes and my, watching my kids play in our backyard um, uh, that I decided to stop uh, and make this video and put them on. I didn't prep them for this. I stopped and made this video just to see. I will see how jiggly it is. But, okay, if I was to read in the Bible and read that it said that people will stop disobeying God, all sins will stop, and the sins will be paid for, and instead, people will be good forever, and everything God said to his people will be done, and everyone will recognize the Holy One. Who do you think accomplishes that? Who Jesus. makes that happen? Jesus. Who makes that happen? Jesus. That's right. Jesus is going to make that happen. And if you disagree, good luck. <laughs> Convince her. Won't happen. Well, I think this is abundantly, again, clear in our messages. When we run into verse 24, we may not necessarily know the how or the when, but we certainly know the source. This is Jesus. Jesus will accomplish this as Messiah. Three quick options that are probably more um, uh, understood generally uh, in when this actually plays out. Um, a lot of uh, commentators go with the understanding that this all, all was accomplished. These 70 weeks, this period where all these things happened, was accomplished um, at the time of Jesus' either uh, inauguration, death, resurrection, or really by the time the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Um, there's a lot of people who say that this was all accomplished then. There's others that take a view that say, well, it was not only accomplished then, um, but it will also be accomplished again. Um, because we've got this character, this Antichrist, uh, this man of lawlessness that we run into in uh, Thessalonians and in Revelation. We have those events, so how do we explain those? Um, so they say, yes, it happened then with Jesus, but it'll happen again one day. And then there's probably a third view um, that says that none of this has actually happened, and all of this will happen uh, again at the restitution of the temple for the Jews um, and the nation of Israel, and that is a future date um, looking ahead. I tend to lean personally somewhere with the mix of the first two. Um, I do think in one sense this very much was accomplished by Jesus um, in the time uh, of His work and ministry here on earth. Yet again, like we've been good students of Daniel, we see that there's this notion with these prophecies that sometimes we see their fulfillment and then we see their recycling and a continued fulfillment. And I think this is what we run into here is that we've seen this fulfilled in Jesus, yet it's foreshadowing of something that's still yet to come. Ephesians 1.9 is one of the reasons why I think Jesus accomplished this, because it says, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Christ is going to be the fullness of time. He will unite all things, things in heaven, and things on earth. This will be accomplished through Him. Yet, we have an ability to actually participate um, in what he already had accomplished in a way that even can mark us blameless and can allow us to participate in God's righteousness. It says in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing uh, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. This is why I think this did, was accomplished. It was, it was sealed, it was started in the inauguration of the kingdom with Jesus, yet there's a notion of something still to come. There's still us being able to participate in the righteousness that He's done, but then there's still also this aspect of sin that still will need to be handled. In one way, it is broken, 
Death, where is your sting? That is accomplished and was accomplished on the cross. Yet there's a goal here. When we look back at that, it should lead us to look rightly forward to when He comes again. Theologians put this as this this term of the ages where we're in this already not yet phase. Here's a a graphic to help us kind of understand this. We have the the present age described in the Bible as one of exile, oppression. This is the reign of sin and death. And then we have the coming age to come, what we read here, this restoration of the kingdom, freedom from oppression, reign of the Messiah over Israel, the presence of God. That is still yet to come. But yet there's a very good sense that, that this kingdom to come has already started and that came in the life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now we are living in a way that both of these intertwine. We still find ourselves as ones marked of the flesh where we sin, but we're not stuck in our sin and we can actually count God's righteousness as our own even now by putting faith in Him and asking Him to forgive us of our sins. This coming age is present to us now, even though we live still in the present age. And again, when we look at this, what Jesus is to accomplish, it should point us back to the cross, only to point us forward to Christ's return, and only then gives us this anticipation of, Lord, come, come quickly. Put all this mess right. So how, how do we see this kind of played out, at least from these 70 weeks? Well, we get this whole picture presented to us. We know all that is going to be accomplished and who is going to accomplish it. And then we get some further details of how this plays out. And that's where things get more and more complicated. But at the same time, give us, I would say, more and more insight or encouragement that this could actually, again, be literally fulfilled. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Apparently in this, all the 70s, we should get run into the first seven. And that it starts with, it starts with this uh, decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Four views of when this potentially happened. Um, Last week we talked about Cyrus decreeing the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra 1. Um, We talked about Darius in Ezra 6 uh, later confirms uh, Cyrus's decree. And then we also have another character we run into in in Ezra 7 where Artaxerxes, he decrees for a provision of animal sacrifices in the temple. Um, And uh, later in 444 BC, we have Artaxerxes decreeing that uh, Nathan can actually go and rebuild the temple. And that's found in Nehemiah 2. And so there's, again, a very real possibility that what, what is this, this word that goes out to restore the temple? Which one of those in the events? Well, it could be one of all of these. I tend to like, again, the, the last one, but again, I think it could be any of them. And again, I think it could give us an assurance that this is how this gets fulfilled. So he goes on, he talks about the next couple of weeks. He, he says then for 62 weeks in verse 25b, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So here we run into two people. First, we run into this anointed one who is cut off. And then we run into this prince, apparently this prince who brings about a continuing destruction. Again, I can't read... um, 
Isaiah 53 and not see how this anointed one in this passage is, again, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It says in 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for generations who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. I think that this first anointed in person to come is clearly Jesus Christ. But then who is this prince who will come in and destroy the city? We'll probably run into detail a little bit of this later in the book of Daniel, but um, I likely probably think that this, this then is Titus, somewhere around the destruction of the temple in AD 70 that we know. Um, again, I think that this falls onto him as this prince. And again, I don't think it ends with him. I think it continues to go, um, and that's where it gets even more complicated, but our text continues to go in verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall, uh, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed is poured out on the desolator. Why this probably doesn't give us a ton more helpful insight into this because it doesn't directly say who is he. Is this he uh, referencing back to another one of the princes, an anointed prince, or is this the anointed one? Um, is this back to the Messiah? Some people read that, and they read 27 essentially as a restatement of what's going on in 26. And then there's a lot more that uh, play this out and want to say, no, 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 this is why, and then again, what I had said, this is why um, at the start of God's kingdom this is accomplished, but yet there is a sense where it will still be played out. There's still more to happen, and this is somehow giving us insight into how it happens. I think this is why uh, things really get complicated, because depending on how you take um, this last little period of the 70s really plays into how you interpret Revelation, how you interpret uh, Thessalonians, how you interpret Raleigh, your eschatology, the times dealing with the end of the age. Um, so is this the, a repetition of it, or is this still something to come? Um, I don't know. We'll settle it right here and now. I got a coin. No, I, I think this is where we'll end probably on our, on our deep dive um, because this is, this is hopefully what I want to still maintain. I want to maintain that there is still a mystery preserved here. And I want us to consider that and uphold that mystery and understand that it only plays out because of what Jesus Christ will accomplish. So I hope there's a little bit of this overwhelming mystery that's still here that leads us to an anticipation of Christ to come. Because ultimately, if our aim is to see Christ rightly in His role in this equation, then I think we still have to understand Gabriel's message to us. We may not understand all the details clearly now, but if we understand the source and we participate in His work, then one day we will. This is why Paul writes in Corinthians, as for prophecies, they will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. I know in part, now, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So where does that leave us? Well, here's the good news. We're one week closer than we were last week. So that's good. 
but also hopefully it finds us challenged again by God's word, uh, convicted to know we remain faithful to him as he obviously has remained faithful to us. And so may may we continue to look away from ourselves and continue to look towards God. I'll close again. God hears you. God has come for you. And God truly loves you.